Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Well, I haven't seen yet where they're bringing up the motion to vacate the speaker. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. 833, got Tony, 833-468-8669. McCarthy is speaking like there ain't nothing wrong. Uh, You've got Congressman Matt Gates of Florida put forward the motion to vacate the chair. I thought that was going to happen today. McCarthy's like, bring it. He actually put out on uh, Twitter X, bring it on. Here he is. My, My only conversation with Jeffries, I got a lot of respect for him, you know. You guys do whatever you need to do. Um, I get politics. I understand where people are. I truly believe, though, the institution of the House. At the end of the day, if you throw a speaker out that has 99% of their conference that kept government open and paid the troops, I think we're in a really bad place for how we're going to run Congress. Are you expecting Democrats to back you up? I don't think that's the best way to respond. If you're talking about, uh, well, they're going to defund the military. This is about not getting things done when they needed to. This is about a lack of planning. Don't deny that people are pretty upset with how you handled things. And maybe there's something for you to learn about how to handle things better. Maybe they should have taken some of the earlier continuing resolutions, or maybe, just maybe, this should have been handled with a much more vocal um, push months ago. Chip Roy, Texas, has come out against the motion to vacate, and just now, Congressman Dan Bishop of the North Carolina 8th, quote, after deliberation, I have decided to vote against the motion to vacate against the chair for three reasons. First, Mr. McCarthy is an accurate reflection of the current House Republican conference. Second, Congress operates by numerosity. There must be a substantial groundswell for an effort toward fundamental change. One person's play call with roughly five to seven potential supporters portends no path toward success, only chaos. That's why I haven't previously moved to vacate the chair myself. Third, A reckoning is due in the Republican Party to make it a force capable of confronting the crises and opposition we face. I have chosen a different path outside of Congress to pursue to make it one. I cannot impose impose this burden on an institution from which I am soon to depart. I respect the courage of those who will take a different path. Dan Bishop is a guy who voted against McCarthy for speaker, uh, said uh, no repeatedly. This does not look like, this does not look like he's going to get the, 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 the votes. Instead, it's stories out there written by former speaker Newt Gingrich that states, and I quote the headline, Republicans must expel Representative Matt Gates." Damn, yo! Um, I, I believe 
the expression. You'll you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I believe uh, the expression is uh, you you come at the king, you best not not miss. Right? You come at the king, you best not miss. Uh, uh, Matt Gates may have missed. Matt Gates may have missed. But I think it's it's wrong. To look at the people bothered by McCarthy or angry with McCarthy, and and by the way, I don't think we should remove McCarthy because I don't think there's a plan going forward. And I don't want to give Democrats an opportunity through some angry Republicans to get the to get the House. Because it's possible. Remember, the the Speaker of the House does not even have to be a member of Congress. Speaker of the House can be I can be Speaker of the House. And by the way, I'd be awesome. Cigar smoking right on the house floor. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Immediately, if not sooner. What I would spend on the installation of quality ashtrays and filtration. And that's it. That's the only spending that would take place. Everything else would be a reduction. An elimination. Oh, oh, I'd be a treat. Um... I don't think you risk the idea of a furthered fractured, if you will, Republican Party uh, and then have somebody say, you know what, I'd, I'd rather have, um, I, I would rather have uh, a Democrat be a speaker than deal with McCarthy. Crazy people do crazy things. Victoria Sparts, Congresswoman from the 5th District of Indiana, my member of Congress, Quote, I will not table Representative Matt Gates' motion to vacate Speaker McCarthy and allow it to proceed to the floor, but I will not vote to vacate the Speaker at this time and will give him one last, last chance to deliver on national debt, border security, and the 12 appropriations bills. This is not going down. That's exactly what it looks like. Exactly what it looks like. And if you missed my my, my conversation uh, with uh, Senator Mike Braun or, or earlier on my morning show with Congressman Jim Banks about this and about uh, is there levels of Republican dysfunction, uh, I will share them with you coming up. Hoo-wee. Now you're Matt Gates. Just as a, 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 a matter of, of conversation. Because right now, what it's looking like uh, and and I and I think I I have it right. Is that Matt Gates does not have the votes? You don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. <laughs> You're gonna need congressional approval, and you don't have the votes. Hamilton's good for something. So if he doesn't have the votes, what happens to him? I mean, never mind what it is Newt Gingrich is suggesting regarding expulsion. What happens to Matt Gates for pushing this forward? Is there punishment? Does he lose committee assignments? Should he lose committee assignments? Will there be that kind of retribution? The answer is, I don't know. I do not have the answer there. What I know is Chip Roy, Dan Bishop, Victoria Sparts. You don't have um, you don't have much more room to 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 work. You don't.
I'm keeping an eye on C-SPAN, keeping an eye on the House floor and see if this actually does come to the floor because McCarthy said, yeah, all right, let's do the thing. Let's do the thing. Kevin McCarthy, ooh, 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 this is about to get exciting. Where's my popcorn? I told you, producer Jason, popcorn at the ready at all times. Hold on. McCarthy just took the podium. By Chaplain Kibben. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, you desire not the strength of our arguments, nor the vigor of our opinions, but the gravity of our humble sacrifice. On this day, may we sacrifice our inclination for contempt and instead initiate kindness. Loosen our grip on judgment, and instead may we grab hold of a generosity of spirit. May we forswear our grudges and commit instead to exercise forbearance. Hold us accountable that our arguments will support your righteousness and not ring hollow in the defense of our rightness. May our struggles serve to preserve the dignity of this body and not erode our commitment to its noble purpose. May our words underscore our devotion to the common good and not undermine our ability to see, even in our adversary, the image of God common to all. Open us to your inspiration, for only in you can we aspire to an attitude of sacrifice. With you upholding us, we can be strengthened in our every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And so we pray unto him that is able to keep us from falling, hoping that you, in your mercy, will receive our prayers and this body into your keeping. Amen. I would have started talking, but I didn't think it was right to interrupt the prayer. I thought that'd be rude and didn't do it. Now let's see where they go. Clause one of rule one, the journal stands approved. The Pledge of Allegiance will be led. Okay, they're going to move on to some other things. This just came out from the Democrats. The Democrats assigned by Hakeem Jeffries, the leader of the Democrats in the House. We confront a serious, solemn and sober moment. The vote that the House will cast this week in connection with the motion to vacate the chair is not about any one individual. Our responsibility as members of Congress relates to the Constitution, the principle of good governance, and the people we are privileged to serve. Nothing more and nothing less. Oh, I love getting lectured to by Democrats. In that regard, House Democrats remain willing to find common ground on an enlightened path forward. Unfortunately, our extreme Republican colleagues have shown no willingness to do the same. It is now the responsibility of the GOP members to end the House Republican Civil War. Given their unwillingness to break from MAGA extremism in an authentic and comprehensive manner, House Democratic leadership will vote yes on the pending Republican motion to vacate the chair. So the Democrats are going to take advantage of this opportunity to, uh, to put an end to this. That's the plan. That's the plan. They're going to vote in that way. So this is going down. This is happening, but just remember, uh, it would be much easier to deal with Democrats if they would just break from communist extremism and Marxist extremism in an authentic and comprehensive manner. I'll bring the updates as they come about. This is Tony Katz today. We need more officers. We don't have the officers that we need, and sadly, we've lost three to 400 officers in the last four years. 
Um, we haven't had officers in our schools, and we have policies that make it difficult to create recruit new officers. I guess that's what people screaming defund the police will uh, do. Tony Katz, Tony Katz, today, that is the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser. This is a story of violent cities. It's a play in two acts. Things that took place within a 24-hour period in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We start with D.C., where Congressman Henry Cuellar was carjacked at gunpoint by three guys outside his apartment. D.C. is unsafe, just like every major city in America. All run by Democrats, uh, save Dallas, where the mayor there just switched parties, realizing they can't go along with what these Democrats are doing. That's crazy. As a matter of policy, it doesn't work. Who cares where they are on abortion? If your mayor is pro-choice, really pro-abortion, it doesn't matter if your city is unlivable, if the garbage doesn't get collected, if there are potholes in the street, if you're going to get shot in front of your apartment or in your home, if you're going to get carjacked. Well, it won't happen if we get rid of the guns. Your answer is the getting rid of rights. Living in an authoritarian hellscape doesn't do you any good either. Because there's no end to what the authoritarian will take away to keep you safe. If you had ever, ever read a book, you would know this. Freaks. Stop thinking the answer is I have less rights. How about the answer is we stand up to those people committing the crimes. We throw those who need to be thrown in jail in jail. And then how about a little bit of prison reform so people can actually get on to better lives when they get out. But we don't stand for a lawless society. How about we tell people who are being filthy they're being filthy and say no? How about we fight back? How about we start with not telling everybody in D.C. they're not allowed to have a firearm, but demanding that everybody of a legal age has a firearm in Washington, D.C. and be trained. If you don't take the training, then we fine you. What? What? I'm saying try it. I'm saying try the opposite of what it is you're doing, and maybe we'll get an interesting result. Congressman was carjacked in front of his house by guns, by gunpoint, not by guns, by people, by criminals who feel that they are in control, that they have all the power because we have prosecutors who do nothing. Nothing. These prosecutors, whether they be in New York or, or Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, or, or Chicago, or Indianapolis, Ryan Mears, or, or a host of other places, they don't do anything. They won't actually prosecute crimes. And the criminal element feels that there's an opportunity. And so they take it. Story number two goes to Philadelphia where a journalist was killed in their home. Killed in their home. His name is Josh Kruger. Josh Kruger, I had never heard of a day in, in, in my life. But Kruger wrote repeatedly, on, for example, on social media, Philadelphia is fine. Philadelphia is not violent. Philadelphia is, is great. These people 
are just fear-mongering, and that's all they're doing. All they want to do is push the radical political right politics, and and uh, and they want to just attack. They just want to attack uh, th- this city. No, people noticed that the city is dangerous. The people who live there note that the city is dangerous. People are aware that society is breaking down in too many spots and that criminal elements were allowed to walk freely, move freely, and never have to consider whether or not they would have to deal with the consequences of their actions. Josh Kruger kept telling people that everything's fine and you're being a ridiculous bigot. This from the tweets and other things that are out there. I may have disagreed with this guy in every political thing. He did not deserve to be shot to death in his home. He didn't deserve this. In no way did he deserve this. This was a a tweet that he was responding to uh, where someone said, I do think that the government arresting drug addicts who shoot up in public rather than coddling them is a powerful deterrent to non-addicts. And Josh Kruger wrote back, it isn't. Deterrent effects are almost always dramatically overrated in general. If arresting drug users was a powerful deterrent against others using, then these historical responses about marijuana make no sense. It's clear there's zero deterrent. Just an example of where he was at. He did not deserve to die because he was wrong. But one can argue that the people who follow these types of policies and believe in not arresting criminals, believe in not responding uh, to to criminal activities, not actually prosecuting, having these DAs and these, these prosecutors who don't go after criminals, that clearly does send a message. That clearly does make a city unsafe. How many more ways do you need to see it? Josh Kruger, I never knew, and I've never read his work outside of these posts on social media, did not deserve to die. But I can also clearly say that if you're going to tell me that everything is fine, Josh Kruger, if he was telling people everything is fine, was wrong. He was wrong. Things are not fine. Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Chicago, Illinois, Los Angeles, California, San Francisco, California, New York, New York, Atlanta, Georgia, Indianapolis, Indiana, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Things are not fine. They're not fine in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're not fine in St. Louis, Missouri. They're not fine in Fort Wayne, Indiana. They're not fine in South Bend, Indiana. They're not fine. What if they could just be better? What if just the simple recognition that what we're doing isn't working, we should do something else? And we should try the things that we know work based on history. And then we could try little things here and there to get better. It's never going to be perfect. I'm not looking for, for perfect. 
There are no solutions, only trade-offs, as Thomas Sowell famously explained. But this doesn't work. And we don't need another person carjacked or killed to prove it. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. Tomorrow on Tony Katz in the morning news, the efforts to remove Kevin McCarthy at speaker were, well, I'll tell you about it in the morning. 6 to 9 a.m., Tony Katz in the morning news, right here on 93 WIBC. Four point seven six nine. That's where the U.S. ten-year Treasury note, the benchmark, went to. I don't even know where it is right now. That's that's not the point. The point is four point seven six nine. You can argue historically that isn't the highest it's been, but when you have a spread of nearly three hundred basis points, that will put the thirty-year fixed at eight percent on a mortgage. Well, this can't be good. For anybody, the markets responded, and then the August job openings came out, 9.6 million, and I don't even know what that means. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis, Dr. Matt Will on the Twitter Xbox, D-R-M-A-T-T-W-I-L-L. We'll get to the Treasury in a, in a moment. The job openings were 9.61 million. It's a jump of 700,000 from July, as reported by CNBC, and the Dow Jones estimate was 8.8 million. So uh, they missed it by that much, uh, to quote Maxwell Smart. What does this number mean, and should it bother us? Um, Tony, here's what it means. It's confusing. This makes no sense to me whatsoever, because... There's a lot of conflicting data. When we look at the uh, PMI report, we're in our 11th month of a contracting manufacturing base in this country. Contracting. Yet job openings went up 800,000. That makes no sense. But I think what's happening here, if you go back to 2021, you may have heard of the phrase called the Great Resignation. Yes. And that phenomenon began... And it's still happening. We had another 3.6% in separations, 3.6%. If you go back in history, that number should be in the 1.823, you know, 2.0 range. This is, this is insane that people are quitting, openings exist, yet the manufacturing base is shrinking. It makes no sense. I, I agree it makes no sense. This report is referred to as the JOLTS report, J-O-L-T-S, Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey. Uh, never mind where the the contradiction exists. 9.61 million jobs available. That would seem to me that we don't have an economy running at f- a full level of force. Well, it goes back to what we talked about before. There are openings that exist. There's not enough people in the labor force, but companies are also contracting. I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it other than it's very confusing. Um, we don't have enough people to fill the jobs, which makes a good point. Do we need a social safety net? Is is that a necessary component? That's your takeaway. 
wait a second before I lose my head. Now, I don't think that's your takeaway. I think you're making an argument that that's going to be some people's takeaway of how to manipulate these numbers. And these numbers, by the way, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, job openings in professional and business services up 509,000, finance and insurance 96,000, state and local government education 76,000, non-durable goods manufacturing 59,000, and the federal government 31,000. Maybe I should be thankful that the federal government was the lowest uh, number but is is this where people politically try to manipulate this data? Well, this proves that we need a more expanded social safety net. No, we need a smaller safety net is what I'm trying to say. Because if our if our job openings are 9.6 million, and if you look at the unemployment report that came out recently, we have 5.3 million people that are looking for jobs. There's a disconnect. 5.3 million people look for jobs, 9.6 million openings. What does that tell you? That tells you that the safety net doesn't need to be as big as it is because we just have a mismatch of people in the economy, and we have to fix the mismatch. The government is allowing folks to be out of a job, look for a job, relax, find it, and take their time. Krugman talks about this all the time, how great that is. Us financial economists say it's a bad thing. In this conversation comes a secondary story that when I saw it, it made me, made me shake my head. That Macy's, so we're talking about old school department store here, is going to open up to 30 stores. Now, we know that they've closed stores. We know that Target has closed stores because of, of organized crime theft uh, and and. and other things that, that are happening. We've seen downtowns that have serious uh, crime issues like San Francisco where the, the Nordstrom flagship has, has closed and, and others. But Macy's is going to open up 30 stores as department stores, right? Uh, they're, they're looking towards strip malls. So instead of looking at malls, they're still going to open the same kind of store, but they're going to look at strip mall locations instead of large mall locations. Is this, as an economist, as somebody who takes a look at how uh, the the economy plays out and maybe where businesses see opportunity, this looks like an opportunity for you? Well, Tony, be careful. Let's not misinterpret what Macy's is doing. And uh, the Simon Property Group people are going to yell at me. I've gotten nasty grams from them before for pointing out a fact. A fact is we're not opening more malls. People aren't going to malls. They're going to lifestyle centers like Clay Terrace and those kind of places. So what you see here is Macy's is shifting their business model out of the mall and into the lifestyle center. That's really what's happening here. So let's not confuse it other than they've identified where their customers are and they're not walking in a building in an air-conditioned building. That's not where they're shopping. So this is, this is about taking advantage of trends, but it also states that there's still an opportunity for these retail shops, which would say that people are still shopping, which brings us back to where this economy is and this 10-year treasury note, the benchmark, which hit those highs, the highest since 2007, 4.769. Now, historically not the highest it's been, as we said, the highest since 2007, but with a 300 basis point spread, really 3%, you're talking about the 30-year fixed mortgage being at 8%. How concerning is this rise of the 10-year treasury to you and economists like you? 
Tony, it's alarming. It's, I can't emphasize enough how alarming it is because the 4.7% is a false number. It's significantly higher because the yield curve is inverted. The, the short-term rates aren't coming down. The Fed has made that very clear. Jamie Dimon has made that very clear. So if the short-term rate's 5.5%, when this yield curve becomes normal, when the 10-year rate becomes normal and it gets back up above the 5.5%, it's going to be 8 9%. That means the 30-year mortgage could be up to 10 so this is worse than it appears because the inversion is corrupting the appearance of the 4.7%. Now that inversion refers to the, let's, we're going to use the six month treasury as the example. Uh, when I checked it earlier, it was, it was a little over five and a half. It was 5.58, uh, I believe. An inverted yield curve is when the six month treasury is higher than the 10 year. Why, why is that a problem? It's a huge problem because people are investing short-term, not long-term. So if I say to you, would you like to invest at 4% or 5.5%? You're going to say, well, I'd rather invest for 5.5%. But it's not good for the economy to invest for six months. It's better for you as an investor to invest for 10 years or 30 years because we need long-term investments. We need a factory built. We don't need you to just park your money in a little treasury for a few months. That doesn't help the economy grow. This was Jared Bernstein yesterday on TV. He is one of uh, the member of the Council of Economic Advisors. He's actually the chair for Joe Biden. These were his words. Well, we think Bidenomics is uh, clearly working, and it's not just about the here and now, although it's about that, too. So let's st start with where we are right now. Uh, again, we have real wage gains over the past few months, and that consistently supports strong consumer spending, which is leading to uh, GDP growth estimates that are way above trend for Q3 that I'm sure you've seen. Uh, if you have a healthy consumer and a 70% consumer spending economy, that's going to get a lot done. That's the here and now. We have wages rising. We have prices coming down. Uh, the headlines down by about half in the PCE, down by more than half in the CPI. And we've seen core inflation at a three-month annualized rate close to 2%, the Fed's target. So we really... Now, one of you is lying, Dr. Matt Will. Who is it? <laughs> Well, okay, Tony, I couldn't hear the news clip the way, um, but I know exactly what, uh, what he said because I'm familiar with the little incident and his exogenous shock comments. Um, he's a political appointee. I'm a neutral observer. I'll let your audience decide which one of us is uh, telling the truth. So you don't think this economy is in a good place? Oh, my God. Where do I begin the list? 11 months of contraction? I mean, uh, the, you know, how, how people do in the stock market last year? Are they happy with their results of losing 20%? I mean, wh where do you go? You know, Germany just came out with their, again, third quarter of recession. Again, the, and the inflation has turned back up. We're back going on the upward slope of inflation. Jamie Dimon says we may have a Fed rate at 7%. I'm just giving you data. I'm not giving an editorial. I'm just giving you data. Everyone should just look at that data and make a decision for themselves. But this is one of the things that has been discussed in our conversations, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, Dr. Matt Will on Twitter X, is the idea of stagflation. And, and that is, uh, to all, a, a frightening term, that the high prices are here to stay, 
that the high rates are here to stay. And when I say here to stay, we're talking about a multi-year kind of, of concept. I have not heard stagflation talked about in the last six months until really the last six days. Did something happen other than what we're talking about here with the Treasury uh, and, 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 and with these interest rates? Did something else happen? What, is it your conversation of 11 months of contracting manufacturing that made people say, oh, oh, this, this is really the way it's going to be for a while? Well, first of all, I don't agree with the stagflation comment. No. I think that that's a – no, I don't. It, it's a risk. But the data right now doesn't show it. And Tony, I'm not going to interpret the data improperly. I'm not going to. I'm not going to look at my crystal ball and say, "Well, today's data is wrong. Next year's data will be different." I don't know what next year's data is. But right now, we don't have stagflation information. And I'm. I'm not going to be one of those people that says, "Oh, it's around the corner," because right now I don't see it. Give but, a definition. The unemployment. Give a definition. Slow, slow econ- Okay, slow economic growth inflation and high unemployment we will have the slow growth we will have the rising prices but i don't see the unemployment being a problem yet because we're still doing that that the great resignation that's still occurring so the great resignation is the idea of people saying i don't need this job anymore but they're not necessarily taking new jobs that's where sometimes you discuss the argument of they're getting finding a way to get paid through the social safety nets that we already have and that's a problem we're paying these people not uh, to 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 work as opposed to saying you got to get yourself back to work and support yourself and and take care of yourself that's that i have you right i understand where you're at correct Yes, but let me add one piece of information to that, and that is that what we've noticed, especially in some of the recent federal government reports coming out, that people are dipping into their savings. We've had the highest uh, savings usage to live, daily living expenses, that we've seen in probably 30 years. And so that's a big part of this as well, is people have decided they're just going to dip into their savings rather than go back to work. I don't understand it, Tony. I'm still confused as to why people are depleting their savings instead of working. I I do wonder whether that's political and the assumption that somehow they'll get a bailout too. That is certainly a, a part of it, right? There there are these social factors and political factors that would have a play, no? Yes. My students do this every day. You know, my students who are, I teach them to be good capitalist business majors and Yet they sit around and they're upset that uh, Biden canceled their debt cancellation for student loans, that they're going to have to pay back their student loans. These are good kids who wish that they had their social safety net in terms of a student bailout. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, Dr. Matt Will, I appreciate you. As always, more coming up. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. This was an extraordinary scene that unfolded in the courthouse behind me, the son of a sitting president facing felony gun charges. As Hunter Biden entered the courtroom on the second floor, he passed by me. I was no more than about five feet away. And there was a sense of nervous energy, a a nervous smile, a sense of real apprehension as we headed into the proceeding. It lasted about 20 minutes. The federal judge asked the president's son, if he understood the charges, the potential serious penalties, and that he had a right to remain silent. And to each, he responded with a strong and soft voice, yes, your honor. 
That is three charges against Hunter Biden to which he has pled not guilty. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. I think it's interesting in that clip. It's Catherine Herridge over at CBS. She was at Fox. It was, I thought it was, oh, he's a huge loss for Fox. Never mind all other issues uh, regarding Fox. She's just excellent at her job. She keeps referring to him as the president's son. I didn't know if that was purposeful or not, but it, it struck me as what an interesting way to play it because it goes against the way nearly everybody else in mainstream media plays it where they try and create distance between Hunter Biden and his father, the president. I thought it was a very interesting way uh, to put it. This is about lying about his drug use on that Form 4473 to purchase a firearm. Never mind how the firearm got, you know, put in a dumpster and, and, and all that jazz. I'm glad that the charges are happening. I, I, that, he, that he pleads not guilty. Why not, why not fight it? Uh, of course that you, you should, in, in many ways, force the other side to make their case, force uh, them to, to prove it, right? The, 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 the burden's on them. It's, it's not on you. And I would say that to anybody in a, in a, in a court proceeding. But I thought this... Uh, this intro from Herridge was was very, very worthwhile. Did I say hello, Tony Katz, Tony Katz today? What's going to happen? Well, that's a great question. It's a question of how the uh, prosecution is going to go about this. Do I have any faith? Do I have any trust? Yes, the charges from the special counsel, uh, David Weiss, but this is the same David Weiss who didn't want to bring charges regarding the uh, the, the tax issues. So why would I believe that they're going to move forward on this? Heck, I was amazed that they brought the charges to begin with. When this was coming out, oh, the the special counsel only has so many days to work with the grand jury and bring charges. I'm like, I I have no idea if this is going to happen or not. Trust this special counsel, the relationship he had with the late Bo Biden and then with the Democratic Party. No, I still don't. But that the sweetheart plea deal got blown up. The lies were shown and now we're at this. I at least appreciate that there's some opportunity for a level of justice here. Let the court proceedings play out. This is Tony Katz today.